0: I appreciate that much grab your Bibles join me in Matthew chapter 22 if you will Matthew chapter number 22 And as we continue a little streak on some topical messages here We'll do so Matthew chapter 22 the title of the message is simply this what do we do with this Jesus? What do we do with this Jesus? If you need an outline, and we'll have Brother Doug's faithfully coming down the middle aisle. So if you need an outline, don't have a prayer bulletin with it on the back, go ahead and get his attention. I'd love for you to follow along. We have several blanks to fill in. I trust it will be both an informative and a um, descriptive message this evening, sermon, as we look into it. Uh, we'll see this title, What Do We Do With This Jesus Christ? We'll answer it at the end, and we'll see why. I entitled the message this way, but if you look in Matthew chapter twenty-two, Matthew chapter twenty-two, we are coming to a point in the ministry of Jesus Christ where things are heating up uh, in his ministry. The persecution he's receiving, the the hostile animosity that uh, the Judaism and those within it are showing Jesus Christ. Is truly heating up. It's, he's in Jerusalem and things are coming to a head. We know what that head is, his eventual crucifixion. And so things are really heating up and we find ourselves in the midst of some of his strongest teaching, in the midst of some of his strongest condemnation and confrontation uh, of the religious leaders of that day. And so this chapter really kind of brings it to a head or shows it, maybe it would be a better way, expresses it. So we'll just look at a few verses. We won't read the entire chapter. And what we're trying to do is contextually see what was going on in the ministry of christ his disciples and what he was facing and those people who were behind if we could say that what he was facing and so forth and so my clicker is not working it's on but it's not clicking let's see oh oh there we go I'll switch to this one, Brother Ron, just see if that works too instead, okay? Thank you. Uh, all right, so let's look here. You'll see the verses here. Let's pick up in verse number 15, if you will. Verse number 15. Then when the, went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Verse number 16. And they went out unto him, their disciples, those of the Pharisees, with the Herodians. And they went on to say, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. And then they go on, tell us, therefore, and ask their question. Look at verse number 23, if you will. <clears throat> and the same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him. And you, you see the question there. It goes on and so forth. We won't focus necessarily on that. Look down to verse 34, if you will. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that the, he, he, he put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Uh, Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, saying, Master, Master, which is the, the great commandment of the law? Okay, so immediately what we see is here, man, he's getting attacked on every front. I mean, look at it. You think of all these groups of people that are coming at him, and whether this chapter represents one day, at least the majority of it does, for sure. But he is getting hit on every side. Everybody's saying, we're going to get him. We're going to entangle him. We're going to trip him up. We're going to prove him wrong. We're going to show that he is not in keeping with the Word of God. We're going to show the people he's a blasphemer. We're going to show the people he's a fake. And they're just trying to come at him from every angle. And they're coming, as we like to say around here, they're coming out of the woodwork. (laughs) Uh, They're coming and attacking him, trying to trip him up and question them. And if you notice, there was uh, four different groups uh, from the Jewish culture community that came out. Uh, They encompassed both political and religious realms and different sects, if we could put it that way. Four groups that Christ had a lot of run-ins with, and especially here at the end of his ministry and such. We know them well. First you have the Pharisees. Then secondly, we have the Sadducees. Then uh, we had mentioned the Herodians. And then we had mentioned the lawyers or the scribes. And we'll see the correlation there. So we see four groups here. And tonight, uh, honestly, I, I started out in a message geared toward the end of Matthew chapter 22. But I thought, you know, Holy Spirit laid it on my heart. Let, let's build up to that and understand what's transpiring here and kind of set the table. And uh, we'll get into what I had hoped to get into tonight and next week. And uh, But this will set the table for it. And so I want to look at these groups. Have you ever wondered as you read the, the New Testament, all right, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, uh, lawyers, scribes, who are they? What do they believe? What's different? Why, why do they have so many groups, you know? And uh, someone maybe coming to uh, uh, the United States and, or someone who is maybe in a country that doesn't have, why so many denominations? Why so many this? Why, why so many political groups? Why, you know, they might ask a similar question. And so it would do, behoove us to know um, these different groups. So let's do that tonight. We'll study a little bit, a little historical background of each one. The first one we want to look at are the Herodians. That's mentioned in verse 16. They're not mentioned often in Scripture. In fact, we really don't know a ton about them. Just a few inferences and mentions here in the Scriptures and some historical writings. Yet what was interesting, historically, they seemed to be rather popular among the people in that day. At least they were looked on favorably. Uh, The masses would, 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 uh, in some ways, uh, look favorably upon them. And That begs the question, why is that? Well, why these Herodians, we'll explain who they are and what they believe in here in a moment, and it kind of answers this question. Why would the people uh, kind of look favorably on that? Well, I believe it's the age-old desire of people, especially the Jews, to which the Herodians appealed. What they held to, their core beliefs, uh, was the thing that uh, really appealed to the people, the masses, and even to the Jews that we could do it that way? See, core of their beliefs, you see, it on the outline here, was their allegiance to Herod the Great. Um, uh, there, in just the century before Christ was born, Herod the Great being in in, in rule, and they were uh, showed their allegiance, their loyalty to his dynasty. Okay, at that time, that meant supporting Herod and Antipas. He had come on the scene after his father had died in about 4 B.C. And uh, he had taken rule, and he ruled from about 4 B.C. to AD 39 approximately and so forth. And so they had great support for that, and uh, the Herodians did. And uh, they supported him as the, the Roman leader, ruler over the land of Israel at this time and so forth. Uh, the Herodians were people among the Jewish culture the Jewish people who would say hey we, we, we need Herod to be in charge we want him to be over this land and and literally pushing that and here's the point why would why did people look on that favorably well do you remember the the basic desire that would often come out and honestly would be one of the Achilles heel of Israel in the old testament was their desire for a human king human ruler Even back in the Old Testament, they looked around, the nations around, said, hey, we want a ruler like that. We want a a king to follow, a human king, an earthly king, and we want that. And so this plays right into that, and the appeal to the people of that day is, we need a ruler that we can rally around. Now, it blows my mind that Jews would pick Herod, a son of Herod the Great. This is the guy who killed all the babies just to try to kill Christ. Well, here are some other things that Herod the Great did. Crazy. There was one time that historically reading of five cities that uh, had held out, had revolted against him, and once they finally surrendered to him, he had all 2,000 people killed in the cities. He was known for killing his own wife, he was known for killing his uncle, and any rumor of things, he he, he wanted to, uh, he, he would arrest them, kill them, put them to death. In fact, what was interesting, history tells us that when he knew he was dying, he gathered all the religious leaders of the Jews in one place, and he gave the command, when I die, kill them all, so that people will mourn. That's who he was. Now... Thankfully, that didn't actually transpire. They did start uh, getting them all together and things like that. This was here. And yet, here are people of the Jews who are saying, yeah, we need that. We need a leader. We need somebody to kind of be in charge and to, to lead us. Why? Well, to them, the path of least resistance would serve the greater good for the nation. Yeah, if we'll just submit and we'll put ourselves under Herod and now Herod the uh, Antipas and, and his father Herod the Great and so forth, Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, if we just submit, then every, that'll be better for our nation. That'll be better. Now, isn't that funny with how they pushed that and yet they failed to submit to the God of heaven? How much better the theocracy would be? Even the Old Testament, not to mention here even in the present day as they were uh, under uh, the Roman Empire and so forth. You see, the Herodians were more political than religious, yet they were still a religious group. They, they held to the law, they uh, subscribed to it. Many scholars believe the Herodians looked actually to Herod as a messiah. A savior complex, if you could describe it as such. Uh, And they believed he would put the Jewish land in favor with the Roman Empire and then bring blessings. You know, they in their mind said, "Ah, we're always getting picked on. The the Romans are picking on us. If we can, if if Herod rules over us, then we'll be in good favor with the Roman Empire. And they'll look favorably upon us. Yet the problem is, that's why in Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, we first read of them. When Jesus Christ came along, they perceived, whoa, 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 the king of the Jews? This guy wants to be the Messiah? Whoa, 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 whoa. And so even early as Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, you see the animosity that's present. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Why? Because don't miss it. They were all for Herod. And guess guess who the person is that's growing in popularity? The person who the masses are going out to and like, man, we never heard anybody like this. And now it's starting to get spread. Do you remember what John the Baptist said about him? Do you remember that? They, it's said that when he was a baby, there's guys who came from the east and they worshiped him and said, this is the king of the Jews. And that word started spreading and people started hearing that. And, and now all of a sudden the Herodians say, whoa, 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 we don't need someone competing with Herod for the popular vote, if we could put it that way we want herod to be our savior we want herod to be the one that is going to put israel back on the map in the roman empire and so you can see that very much what fed them were their political goals and what was the point of that well they they were looking for temporal peace that's what they thought herod would bring if we'll just submit to herod If we can just get everybody in the nation just to uh, stop kicking against the pricks and we submit to Herod, then everything will be great with the Roman Empire. Everything will go well for us. And yet, what did they miss? Oh, the Messiah did not come to bring temporal peace. He came to bring eternal peace. Uh, They missed it completely. Yes, they knew the law, but they they were turning the Messiah into something they believed they wanted or they thought was necessary in that day. And so uh, they would have opposed Jesus Christ. He brought he, he brought a message, what? You must be born again. I, I want to bring peace to your heart, to your life before I bring it to a kingdom. And so they would have opposed him, they opposed his preaching, they rejected him as the Messiah, and so the Herodians you will read about as I said infrequently, not as much as the others, but you will read of them and now we know a little background to why they would have stood in opposition to Jesus Christ. The next one you see on our outline there, the scribes and the lawyers. Verse 35, this lawyer is mentioned here. And who were these guys, these uh, labeled as scribes and lawyers? Well, they were educated men whose responsibility included studying the law. Obviously, they spent many days studying it, and they transcribed it. They, uh, that was their responsibility, copying it, transcribing the law Uh, for future generations and they would also write commentaries on it they would also write commentaries on it interesting that uh, they were also hired independently at times on occasions when the need for a written document arose and so it is very much like a lawyer today in some sense and in that sense they were also brought up uh, were hired for an interpretation on a legal point uh, that was needed at times um, and that's why I agree with Schofield. If you have a Schofield Bible, they, he, he assumes that the lawyers and the scribes are pretty much the same thing. I think there is, at the very least, a huge overlap if they are not the same group of people referred to uh, as either lawyers or scribes. Nonetheless, again, there may just be a great overlap in it. One of the authors of the books in the Old Testament is actually identified as a scribe. You remember who it was? I just showed it a second ago. Some of you saw it. Ezra. Okay. Interestingly, Ezra is identified in Ezra chapter number uh, one, or excuse me, Ezra chapter seven, verse six, excuse me. Uh, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses which the Lord God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. It's interesting the Hebrew term here translated as ready. You see it there in that second line. It literally means skillful. It means knowledgeable. It means well-versed in the the law of the Lord. And that's because a scribe was known to take take their job seriously. Uh, they would pour themselves into it, and and because of that, as they would copy and recopy the Bible meticulously, uh, they took their job of preserving the Scripture very seriously. They they would count the letters, they'd count the spaces to ensure every copy was correct. Uh, they would show special reverence to the name of God, Jehovah, when they came across it. And so uh, they were very instrumental in preserving some of the Old Testament for you and I, portions of the Bible for sure. Some of the scribes were also Pharisees. In fact, our passage here, you may have caught that. Pharisees sent them on their own. One of them, a lawyer, a scribe, was the one who eventually asked the question here in this passage. And so some of them were here. And they often, and here's where you see the crossover really between a scribe and a a Pharisee often in their intermingling with the people. Uh, They were often serving as the teachers to the people so the local synagogues when the people would gather around and we'll hear of a lawyer reading the scriptures we'll hear of someone teaching within within that and many times Jesus Christ would come along and they'd give him the book they, they viewed him like this and as a lawyer a scribe to be able to interpret and tell what the law says and so they'd bring him the scriptures this is what they did they were known as teachers in that sense and, and they interpreted the law so they'd read the law the, the old testament and then they'd give an interpretation to those who were hearing and listening and the Bible bears this out. Mark chapter 1 and verse 22 says this. And they were astonished, speaking of Jesus Christ, as his doctrine. And here he is. He's teaching. For he taught them as one that had authority. And notice this. And not as the scribes. So the correlation, even though it's a negative one, is the scribes are always teaching us. Now they do it without authority. <laughs> they don't sound like somebody who has authority. But here comes Jesus Christ. I Man, it's not like how they teach. He teaches with authority. So we see the example even from Scripture or the, the uh, confirmation from Scripture that they would often teach. Because of this, they were widely respected within the communities. People looked at them as being very knowledgeable about the law. They were very dedicated in their meticulous copying of Scripture. And to the people, the outward appearance was that they kept the law inside and out. So what was the problem? Well, many of the scribes and a uh, lawyer. Sadly, they, they would go beyond uh, interpretation of Scripture. They would go beyond it. And what they would do is they'd add many of the man-made traditions to what God had said. So they would take what a, a rabbi had said back here a century before, whatever the case may be. They would, they would take their own um, inferences from a passage, and they would incorporate that, and they would teach it like it's God's Word. They, they, they would add a little something to it, and, and uh, that became the downfall of the scribes and the lawyers in, in, his, in the time of Christ. They became professionals at spelling out the letter of the law while ignoring the Spirit behind it. We see that in their questions. Well, just who is my neighbor? Because we want to get this right, <laughs> and missing that God wants us to love everyone that every man is our neighbor, that we ought to show kindness and love too. Things like that were demonstrations of the, the reality. They became so bad that the regulations and traditions of the scribes added to the law were then considered more important than the law itself. And that in and of itself put them at great odds with Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus Christ always does when we focus on who he is? I, you know the statement in John. Jesus Christ said, I am the way and the what? Truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Do you realize what Jesus Christ always does? When truth comes on the scene, false or lies are exposed. Whenever Jesus Christ comes on the scene, falsities, lies are exposed. The truth has arrived. And boy, the truth of God's word always exposes. When the light is shined, the reality of the darkness is is shown, demonstrated, exposed. So that's what Christ did. He came along and said, wait a second, this isn't, this, isn't what my, this isn't what me and God the Father and the Holy Spirit desired as we gave you the law. This is not what, no, 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 we didn't want you to add your words to it and change it into something that is not, make that more important. And so we often condemn them. We find him, the scribes mentioned often in Scripture, Christ condemning them right alongside the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He condemned them especially for holding the traditions of man over the instructions of the Scripture, They prove themselves time and time again to be hypocrites, right? Something Jesus pulled it out on several occasions. Look with me one chapter over. Matthew chapter 23, if you will. We're right here. Look at Matthew chapter 23. Look at verse 13. Remember this statement? But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's a harsh statement. That's a strong statement. You know what happens? Jesus Christ repeats it no less than seven times in this one discourse. Now, I don't know about you. Someone called me a hypocrite one time. I don't like it. You do it seven times in one little discourse, we got issues. Uh, it's crazy. Woe unto you, scribes and, and, and Pharisees. Hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. Cr- woe unto you, hypocrites. I mean, boy, he just unloads. Another time he calls them blind guides and so forth. He is piling it on. He is condemning them, exposing them, if we could put uh, that way. It's interesting that uh, Jesus took their teaching head on. You know what we read, Matthew chapter 5 and other places? He, he says this, ye have heard that it was said of old. Now, why is he saying it like that? Ye have heard that it was said of old. And he repeats that several times. You, you, you've heard it said. You, why is it that? Listen, you know what he's doing? He's taking apart the teaching of the scribes and the lawyers. He's exposing, no, oh, no, no, this isn't right. This is a, okay, this part is right, but then you're missing the spirit of the law and so forth. And Christ has come to expose the falsities. Man, I sure am thankful that Jesus Christ is the author of the truth. And as he is, he exposes that which is wrong and false and so forth. Yeah, I'm thankful, too, that he is not a God of confusion. What have these people created? Well, my friends, when you and I take what God has done and we add man's wisdom to it, you know what we get? Confusion. Confusion. Chaos. And that's what they had in Judaism in that day. Jesus Christ comes on the scene and Israel's in trouble. They think they're in trouble just politically. They think Israel's just, I mean, we're, we're at the bottom rung of the Roman Empire and no one likes us and our nation keeps revolting and this is terrible. No, no, no. Spiritually, they were hurting much more than Politically. Jesus Christ comes on the scene and he's having to correct all the error. And my friend, boy, when you, when you start clearing house, people start attacking you. And so it happened. They're coming right back at Jesus Christ. He condemns them for knowing the law, but not doing the law as they ought. Look with me, in Matthew chapter 23, we We're right here. Look at verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatsoever they bid, you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say... And do not. There's the explanation, the description of their hypocrisy by Christ Himself. Uh, this is a great statement. You see, the sit in Moses's seat. You know what He's identifying for us here? This is a this is the position of authority, a position of knowing, interpreting, and ruling on the law. Remember, they looked up to Moses. Moses uh, uh, being their forefather and the uh, patriarch. Man, it was all about Moses. And boy, to be able to sit in Moses' seat, hey, here's what Moses meant when He gave the law. And boy, that was a that was an important position. And here the scribes and the, the Pharisees, even the scribes and the lawyers sat in that seat in a powerful position interpreting and ruling on the law. And yet in that powerful position, they felt in their responsibilities. You know what one of the great principles of God's word is? To whom much is given, much more is required. They had such power, such position, and they messed it up. They ruined it. Uh, they impacted for wrong. Here he comes along, Jesus Christ, and we read it, and my goodness, uh, this is not, in chapter 23, is not a statement of befriending them. It's confronting and condemning them. And so as he condemned their religiosity, they were more than happy to join the others in seeking to destroy Jesus Christ. They threw in their hat, too, the scribes and the lawyers, and if he's going to condemn us, we ought to condemn him. So they threw in their hat with the other group. Now the last two groups we've coupled together because we, we kind of know them better, or at least more familiar with them. Okay? So we have the Herodians. We understand who they are, more of a political sect or group, and, and trying to push for the idea of a human ruler for Israel while also paying at least lip service to the religious aspects. Then we come to the lawyers and the scribes, seemingly very religious, Seemingly to be ones who are very loyal to God's law, but upon closer inspection, we realize eh, they may have said some good things, but they didn't do good things. They didn't do what they said, they didn't really obey the law completely, and Christ came to expose that and certainly did. Then we come to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees seem to be mentioned more than anybody else. Sadducees would be a strong second, and the references to them too, maybe even the scribes comparing them too. So, Let's begin by looking at their similarities. How are they the same? Well, they were mainly religious sects, uh, like the scribes in the sense of groups and so forth. They, they had much power and ruling within the Jewish culture when it came to religious concerns. But they did exert some political influence. And so they would look to them, the people would look, depending on what group of people, we'll talk about that to whom they appealed the most. Um, You can think of it even in some political realms and so forth, the type of people they appealed to and such. That was true with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They appealed to different groups of people. And so they would even look to them for, okay, political things. What should we do with this? And the Roman Empire says this. And how should we embrace that? How should we respond to that? So they would look to the Sadducees and the Pharisees for that too. What they had in common was they both had respect for Moses and the law. They, they both uh, clearly had tried their, you know, in their minds their best to adhere to the law and so forth. They attempted to live by the writings, though they took different angles of it. And they attempted to you know, follow the law in their minds. This is interesting because this is another aspect of the Jewish culture that comes to play that Jesus Christ had to deal with. Both of them contributed members to what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. And this was a, as you see described even here, it's another important term for a group within the Jewish community. So we're kind of identifying all these different groups within the Jewish community. They were, in essence, the Jewish religious Supreme Court. This was the end all, right? We'll talk around here in the United States of America. I can't wait for that case to reach the Supreme Court. Because they're the end, right? And judicially, to make a a judgment, to rule on something. Well, that was religiously what it was for the Jews, even though they would even rule on some political things too. The Sanhedrin. Uh, As they were, they were made up of 70 members including the high priest and in other sadducees and pharisees too okay so they were comprised of 70 members now that might send off some bells in your head right away and, and i always like to ask why they do that you know where where did they get that and and maybe you can think of where in the old testament that's patterned after and this sanhedrin they have 70 and like elders uh, they were the high priest and others Remember back in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 16, God is speaking to Moses and he said this, "'The Lord said unto Moses, "'Gather unto me 70 men of the elders of Israel.'" Uh, And he goes on to describe what they do, which thou knowest to be elders of the people and officers over them and bring them unto the tabernacle, the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And he goes on to say, I'll take your spirit, put it on them, and so forth. And so you see, the the Jews are looking back even to this moment where God had established the uh, 70 elders to help Moses. And so that is their picture of the Sanhedrin. The court would convene every day except holidays or festivity days or, or festival days, excuse me the sanhedrin again claimed powers that no other jewish court had the lesser courts didn't have the same kind of power as such they were the only ones they could actually try the king back back when they israel had their own king the sanhedrin could try their own king and uh, they could extend the boundaries of the temple and of jerusalem Uh, they were the ones to whom were the final verdict on interpretations of the law so there's something much like we think of our law politically or uh, secular law when it came to moses law the sanhedrin were the last ones to rule they gave the final verdict of what that interpretation should be and so forth it's interesting the last binding uh, declaration or decision made by the sanhedrin was in ad 358 and uh, they made the decision at that time to follow the hebrew calendar that is different than our own uh, and so they elected to do that. After that, it was disbanded. Soon after, there's been some attempts to revive it, but that has never occurred, yeah, and so forth there. Interestingly, this is something I find interesting. During Herod the Great's life, uh, he was actually called up on charges before the Sanhedrin because as he was ruling that area and so forth, he stood before the Sanhedrin. He actually escaped in Syria or somewhere to escape any kind of verdict and things like that. This was before he was ruler. When he became ruler, uh, history tells us that he actually gathered the Sanhedrin and would put them all to death as payback, as retribution. And so and he saw it, as it was a powerful group of leaders within the Jewish. Now, there's some historical discrepancies. Some say he let one guy or two guys live, but the, uh, for sure the majority were put to death by Herod uh, the Great. And it's, uh, the great Sanhedrin in Scriptures now um, are referred to, and I, I think one of the great examples is Jesus Christ, what he had to deal with after he was uh, uh, he was. Um, taken there in the garden. He was arrested. Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, you'll see these references, and these are the references to the Sanhedrin meeting. Notice it. and they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, so there's the high priest. He's always a part of the Sanhedrin, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. A quick assembly of the the Sanhedrin. Get them all together. And you'll see this throughout the scriptures, this kind of reference. And obviously here it is referencing the mock trial that they put Jesus through and uh, that he had to endure. So uh, these are the similarities. Okay, there's not a whole lot. In fact, the differences are much greater between the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So let's look there. The differences, you see at letter B on your outline there. Religiously, it's kind of interesting. The Sadducees would be what we would call the more conservative group along the doctrinal line, specifically in one area. They believed in the literal interpretation of the text of the Scripture. So taking it for what it says, they believed in that literal interpretation of the text of Scripture, uh, much like we would. However, obviously, they deviated in adding traditions of men right up there with it. Okay, So uh, the Pharisees, on the other hand, and here's where they really erred, um, they gave oral tradition equal authority. Well, so-and-so rabbi says this, certainly written tradition too, but the oral tradition passed down. And, and so they would even add, you know, yes, it says that in Numbers, and it says that in the Old Testament, the five books, the Pentateuch. And yeah, but, but we've gotten this from rabbis down through the ages that God also told Moses this. Ugh, my friend, that's heresy. It's heresy. And that's wrong. And so that's extra revelation outside of what God has preserved and so forth. And so that's the kind of thing that they would have passed down and uh, communicated to uh the sadducees if they did not find a command in the tanakh which is the hebrew bible they dismissed it they wouldn't have anything to do with it and so they said that was man-made it's quite interesting how much they protected god's word in that sense and yet they also embraced some of the the traditions and so forth well the pharisees and sadducees as they had a different view of scriptures it's no surprise they argued over certain doctrines Okay? We know what one of the greatest ones, in fact, it was mentioned here in our passage in Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees rejected any idea of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, they, they wouldn't have nothing to do with that. Many passages, the verse 23 we read a moment ago here in Matthew 22, Mark chapter 12. We'll look at another one here in just a moment too. The Pharisees, though, did believe in the resurrection. And uh, going hand in hand with that, the Sadducees denied the afterlife. They, hold, they held that the soul just perished at death, became nothing, and uh, went back in their minds to nothingness. Pharisees believed in the afterlife, they believed in appropriate reward and punishment for individuals. The Sadducees have rejected the idea of the unseen. A spiritual world. They don't believe there was a realm, a spiritual realm, in which existed, as the Pharisees taught, angels and demons. They, they just didn't believe that. They didn't hold to that. They didn't see it. And uh, frankly, I don't have a clue if you held to the literal interpretation of Scripture how you can see that and miss that, but they did. And uh, the Sadducees didn't hold to that. So they denied all of those things. Now, here's what's interesting, too, about this. Um, another difference, and it kind of bespeaks uh, even... Uh, um, across the, the, the pages of history how different groups appeal. The, the Sadducees, they were uh, typically more wealthy. Uh, they appealed to the aristocracy, the elitist, and they themselves were part of that group. They they often held more powerful positions in uh, different places within the religious system and things there. The chief priests, the high priests were typically Sadducees. They held the majority of the seats in the Sanhedrin, though both groups made up that Sanhedrin, but they held the majority of them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were more representative of the common working masses, the people, and uh, connected well with them. it's interesting, the, the Jewish historian Josephus gives us a good glimpse. He himself was a Pharisee, and he made this statement here, uh, describing it. And he's talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he said this, the, uh, and concerning these things, it, it is that great disputes and differences have arisen among them, the Pharisees. While the Sadducees are able to persuade none but the rich, and have not the populace obsequious, That means the obedience, the given deference to them. But the Pharisees have the multitude on their side. So you see to which their appeal is. The Sadducees' main place of power, the thing that they kind of held to was the temple in Jerusalem, the main place of worship. And so they kind of, that was their place, the place of power, the thing that they were in control of in a sense. The Pharisees controlled the synagogues and the little cities and the different towns scattered around. That's why we alluded to the Pharisees of whom were some scribes that would do much of the teaching to the people and things there. And so you see that, uh, obviously you may have already derived too, they, the Sadducees may have been a little bit more sympathetic to the Herodians, uh, in some ways, because the Sadducees were friendlier with Rome. They tried to accommodate the Roman laws and encourage the people to go along with it, more so than even the Pharisees were uh, or did in that sense. Okay, uh, Here's a little interjection. I love this letter C. One of my favorite, obviously one of our favorite characters of the New Testament is Paul. Paul sometimes is very quick witted Paul thinks on his feet, if you could put it that way. I think that's very evident in scriptures in different ways. And there was an occasion where Paul understood that. And he pitted the two groups against each other. And that example happens in uh, Acts chapter, um, there's Paul, Acts chapter number 23. So if you turn with me there, I'd like to show you this. Acts chapter 23, real quickly, will be done here in just a moment. But Acts chapter 23, if you look there. I think this is a, a humorous in some ways, but in a, a good explanation for us. Okay, we have these different fighting, sometimes contentious, arguing groups within Judaism at the time. Now notice it, verse number six, okay? And I love this statement. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, He cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called into question. (laughs) I love it. You know what he just did? Uh Uh-oh. We got problems. He just identified himself as a Pharisee. Furthermore, he threw out a doctrinal difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees that was like throwing a match into gasoline. This thing was about to explode. I love it. You see what the verse said? He perceived. He perceived. He looked around and goes, Uh-oh, Uh oh, ah, I know what to do. I ho- you know why they're bringing me here? Because I am of the hope of the resurrection. What did he say? Notice the next couple of verses. Verse 7 And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and I love this, verse number 9, the Pharisees speak up. Aha, let's defend Paul. And the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Do you see what else they did? So Paul brings up resurrection. All the Pharisees, ah, okay? Their Pharisees stand up. Hey, he's perfect. He's a good man. We don't find any evil in him. And who's to say an angel or a demons to be sent? Let God judge that. And the says, "You talk about angels and demons. We don't believe in that." And so, man, can I tell you, that's like stirring a hornet's nest. Don't try that. That's like sticking a stick in there and stirring it up. That's what he does, and it, it kind of suits his purposes. Do you realize, I uh, man? Paul was smart in doing so because he pitted them against each other in this way, and it certainly worked out. Verses nine and ten, some of the verses we read there, show what what, what was the outcome dissension, a great cry, a great uproar, (laughs) and it goes on, verse 10, and when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, and a great tumult commanded the soldiers to go down, to take him by force from among them to bring him into the castle. What What a great description of what transpired as he kind of pitted them against one another. Okay, here's the point. You have these groups that Jesus Christ comes on the scene. Now listen to me. When you reject the truth of God's Word, you're going to reject the Son of God who is the truth. And so they did. So Jesus Christ comes on, and the Sadducees have this problem with him. The Pharisees have this with him. The Herodians have this problem with him. The scribes and lawyers have this problem. They all find issue with him, and we'll see that that comes to a great uh, boiling point, if we could put it that way. But here's a question that I think is pertinent for us to ask and to answer, letter D. Why, why does it appear from the Scriptures that Jesus Christ seemed to have more run-ins with the Pharisees? Why did it seem in Scriptures, as you study the, uh, the New Testament, Christ's interactions, that, that it seems that he really addresses the Pharisees, obviously scribes being a part of the Pharisees too at times, a good majority. Why does he always address them? I think there's two reasons. We've already covered them in a sense, so we'll just say it quickly, but it's does good to bear it out. Number one, the common people held the Pharisees in a higher view. They held them in a place of influence. Uh, if you were to talk to the common people, the, uh, the common working class, the, those who, who lived uh, and just meeked out a, a meager existence, um, or eked out a meager existence, the reality is that those people would have looked up to the Pharisees. They would have listened intently to what the Pharisees had to say and tried to follow. They had obviously more power through teaching the people. The people looked up to them as they presented themselves. The Pharisees would present themselves as the picture of righteousness. And what pleases God? So don't, under, so don't miss it. What did Christ have to do? He had to go in and really tear down in the minds of the people this false representation of what God wanted. He had to expose it for the fraud that it was. He had to expose them for the hypocrites they were. And he had to expose their teaching as the uh, for the emptiness of the way of the law that they pushed for what it was. So he had to come in and he had to, the Pharisees were the ones who were connected with the people, had more influence. The, the people, they taught the people. And so the, he really had to go in there and, shower that with the truth and expose what they were number two the other thing that obviously is something that christ wanted to set straight was their uh adherence to the oral traditions and the pro- and the main problem was they held them above the law uh, at first they put them on the equal level but reality is they started saying well we we're teaching these things as above the law i mean that that is borne out time and time in scriptures Okay? Look at Mark chapter 7 real quick with me, if you will. Mark chapter 7 be the last passage we look at. Mark chapter 7, notice what Christ says to them here, and this is the condemning statement that he gives specifically to the Pharisees that, that falls into this. Mark chapter 7, verse number 8 says this. He's answering them, the Pharisees and the scribes. are asked. In fact, the question in verse number 5 is about the tradition of the elders. Isn't that interesting? They're really hitting Christ over the head. Listen, well, but The tradition of the elders is this. And he says this in his response here in verse number 8. For laying aside the commandment of God. You catch that? Let's set God's word aside. Ye hold the traditions of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things you do. Jump down to verse number 12. Or 13, excuse me. You make making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. Man, what a statement. Two things that they have treated the word of God like. Number one, they've laid it aside. Number two, they've made it of none effect. You're taking God's word, and and, and I would compare it modernly to someone preaching, and they'll read a verse at the beginning of their message, and then they'll talk for 35 minutes and tell you what they think. My friend, that is not what God intended. God wants you and I to study to show ourselves approved. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, or truth. So Christ is coming, kind of like, oh, you Pharisees are focusing way much, too much on the tradition. In fact, you're taking the traditions, you're emphasizing this, you're laying aside the word of God, you're saying, you're making this of none effect in people's lives, and my friend, it is not the word of men that changes lives, it's the word of God, the truth of God's word. So Christ has to come. He has to set it all straight. And the Pharisees, might we say, are the ringleaders when Christ comes on the scene. And they, they've warped Judaism. They've warped what God has spoken in his law. And now Christ has come to set it straight. And I don't know about you. I sure am thankful he did. Grateful that he's come along. And he has appeared to expose them for what they are. They had promoted and pushed the traditions of men over the Word of God to the degree that the truth was overshadowed, is what Christ said. And as being the truth, Christ couldn't stand for that. Those two verses make it greatly clear that the ways of the Pharisees, the power and the influence they wielded, were doing great damage uh, in the sense of Judaism and the Jewish culture. So, as we consider the end of the life of Jesus Christ and his ministry here on earth, we, we notice that for the most part during his, his early years of his three-year ministry or however long it was, uh, the Sadducees kind of ignored him. There wasn't much that they said. There were occasions, but not much. They kind of ignored him. He really didn't appear on their radar until it started to threaten things politically. Uh, as much as even some of the disciples believed in others that Jesus Christ was coming, he's the Messiah, he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire, he's going to cause the kingdom of God to be established now, the kingdom of Israel, he's going to sit on the throne of David. And they were thinking and spreading it, it's going to happen in this moment. The Sadducees didn't like that. That threatened the upheaval of the status quo. And the Sadducees, remember, they were favorable to Rome. Uh, we got to keep this good. We want to stay in the good graces of Rome and so forth. And so when those things and rumors and comments about Christ started, and they sensed it was starting to bring in Roman scrutiny, unwanted Roman attention. And his teachings they heard and the miracles he performed, they didn't like that. It got to be too much. And so the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the lawyers and scribes, they all set aside their differences, they united, and they conspired to Jesus Christ. And herein is where the title of our message comes in. In John chapter 11, verse 47, there's something that happens. Uh, the high priest, and uh, who's a Sadducee, he starts realizing we've got to do something about this. This guy is doing miracles, he's teaching people, and this is creating an uproar. And again, this is near the end of his ministry. This is really realizing he's been there for a couple Passovers now. These people are, are, are rallying to him. This is not good. And so here's what happens. The, the high priest in John eleven forty seven. 47, he goes, okay, Pharisees, hey, we've got to put our heads together. We've got to put aside our differences. We've got to get it together. And he puts together a council. And you can be assured on this council, obviously Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians, scribes and lawyers. And here's the question. Here's the question he put before the council and the council was to answer. What do we? The obvious statement from the uh, inference from the rest of the verses described there, what do we with Christ? What do we with this guy? How do we handle this? Listen, he teaches something that's completely different than everything we hold to. He, he's saying things. He's condemning the way that we think. Uh, he, he's re- the people are really starting to ask questions, and it's becoming uncomfortable. It, it's not convenient. And so their question is, what do we with Christ? Can I tell you, the simple answer should have been this. We need to submit and get back to the Word of God. We should see, see him for who he is. His miracles and all that He has done obviously prove that He is the Son of God. They ought to fall fallen in line, but uh, as they met, as they uh, got together, we read verse 53, the conclusion. Here's what verse 53 says. Then from that day forth, they took counsel. They got together. They decided we're going to put Him to death. Instead of surrendering, submitting, pursuing the truth, what if what he's saying is true? Let's look back at God's law. Let's, look, like, let's make sure that he's, he's not right and that we're wrong and or, that we're right and vice versa and so forth. No, they continue in their stubborn revolt. But here's what's neat. They said, hey, we're going to get him. I, I love this statement because in verse 54, right after what they decide, verse 53, here's what verse 54 says. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. The next few verses go on. They issued orders. If anybody sees him, you let us know where he is. Tell us where he is. We're going to arrest him. My friend, listen to me. Man can never change God's timetable. It wasn't time for Jesus Christ to be crucified. It wasn't time for these things to happen and so forth. And this is the contextual build-up to what we're going to see next week in the end of chapter 22. But I would leave you with this and never forget it. Here's what they all found out. Every single group, whether it be the Herodians, the scribes, and the lawyers, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. If Jesus Christ is not the center of your life, he will be a disruption to your life. If Jesus Christ is not the center of your life, he will be a disruption to your life. When he is not the truth, when you do not treat him as the way, as you do not treat him as the life, my friend, Jesus Christ is going to mess up your world. He's going to turn it upside down. And for these groups, that's exactly what happened. So they came to the conclusion, instead of submitting, we're going to stubbornly revolt and we'll put him to death. We see in these groups set the table for something that Christ then asks himself in chapter twenty two that we'll get into next week. Brother Clay, if you'll bring those prayer requests up here, let me mention a couple I wanna